Hi, I'm Garrett, and welcome to The Conversation. I think conversation is one of the most important tools we have for building and maintaining genuine relationships. In the age of the internet and social media, the conversation is a dying art. While we're technically more connected than ever, it seems more difficult than ever to engage with alternative perspectives in a meaningful way. We talk past each other and speak totally different languages without even knowing it. This show is my attempt at working on that problem. I'm trying to learn how to have meaningful conversation and practice what I learn. It's partly an experiment. Maybe if I start having more difficult conversations, I can get better at it. Maybe we can all get better at it. I don't know how this experiment's going to turn out, but hey, this could be interesting. So, yeah, so you said that we, I mean, we're, we're talking about your new book a little bit, but I mean, I just wanted to, <laughs> I mean, obviously this is really, really exciting for me. I've, I've spent the last month essentially, I mean, I, I was introduced to your work probably about a year or two ago and started kind of watching some of your conversations and watching you talk to different people. And then I started reading through the Master and His Emissary for the first time and got about halfway through it and then was distracted by some other things. The, the problem is you've, you've written a book that really, uh, is is um, kind of self-defeating in a certain way because every time I read the book, it makes me want to stop reading and go do things. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I know a lot of books that, that when I get part way in them, I want to stop reading, but I'm hoping it's not that kind of a problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the up. It's it's like I, I've been. I, like I said it's exciting. Like I'm, I read through this book and I had to keep on like trying to go back to reading it, not because it was boring, but because it made me so excited to go and just live and experience life and, and go and, you know, and, and go and kiss my wife and go and go on a walk and go listen to music. It was just... <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Well, I think that's the best kind of tribute, really, because what I want very much is to... I do everything from not just a purely kind of uh, abstract point of view, but what I want is to express something that I hope is quite deep about life and and our experience of the world and take it back to that. And and what I love is when people say to me, you know, I read a couple of paragraphs and then I go for a, a bike ride or a walk and I yeah. come back and I read another couple of paragraphs. And I love that. I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, I, it's, it's been especially hard because I was like, OK, I've got to make sure I finish reading this book before we get to have a chat. So I, this 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 past week, I've been just like funneling Ian McGilchrist right into my brain just constantly. I, I've listened to probably about 20 hours of of, of your material this in, over the past two weeks. And that's been, <laughs> well, especially with how much it sort of charges me up, it's been hard to not just, again, I have to keep on re redirecting my attention to try and try, try and make it through it. But it's been so, so fantastic. Though, I mean, the end of this book is sort of uh, almost, it, it really begs a sequel because you spend the whole book kind of critiquing, you know, some of the tendencies we've fallen into in the West as far as our leaning towards representation of the world rather than presence in the world. And yes, yes. I mean, it just makes me, it, it sends me on this thought journey of, okay, well, how do I be present in the world? And I'm hoping that's somewhat what this new project is dipping its fingers into. Well, yes, I, 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 I may disappoint you in the sense that it's not a self-help book. I don't write <laughs> self-help books. <laughs> um, but what I do do, I think, is 
See, I trained for many, many years in order to be a psychiatrist. It took me 14 years because I had to start, you know, from with medicine and, and become a doctor and then specialize in the in the kind of overlapping area of neurology and, and psychiatry. And um, one thing that I think that uh, I was able to do quite well was to diagnose. Uh, I, I'm quite good, I think, <laughs> at seeing what's happening and being able to bring other people to see what's happening. But one of the axioms in psychiatry is that you don't tell people what to do, not just because you're being kind of annoying, but, <laughs> but because because if you tell them, they won't do it and they won't believe you and they're not ready to, because if they were ready to, they'd already be on mm. that track. So what you have to do is, and every, you know, uh, fledgling psychiatrist makes the mistake because they know very often when they meet somebody for the first time, they know pretty much what this person needs to do. But the mistake you make when you're kind of wet behind the ears is to tell them. <laughs> and they go, oh, no, I, I don't think so. That that, that doesn't work. Um, so really what you have to do is to take somebody somewhere and let them see what it is that needs to be done. And, and that's actually a much better thing to do because they may see things that you can't see, you can't tell them. And, and that's really what I try to do in these books is to open people's eyes to another way of seeing the world. My new book, The, the Matter With Things, and it's subtitled Our Brains, Our Delusions and the Unmaking of the World, is how I like very much, thank you for going straight to the point, how we now live in a representation of the world, not the actual world as it presences to us, as, to use a sort of Heideggerianism, but it's a, it's a good one and one can't get away from it. The idea of something that comes into being for you through your attention to it, rather than your already conceived theory map idea, which is very, very, very much simpler and leaves almost everything out. The paradox that I always trip over there is that, so, okay, as soon as you are, perhaps you, 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 you become aware that your experience of a thing, say a tree is just sort of a representation of a tree and you have kind of an abstraction of trees and treeness and, and you're not really looking at a tree, but then you try and go in, okay, so I'm going to go and interact with a tree anew for the first time and try to really see this tree as, as something different than, than just this abstraction of treeness. But then as soon as I'm seeing it again, it, it, and, and I begin to take note of different features of it. I start making a feature list again, and then it becomes a new abstraction of a tree. And I'm still, I, like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's so frustrating because you want to, or at least you, you, you become... You become frustrated with this idea of, of abstraction and of representation. You want to have real presence, but then as soon as you get into it, it's, it, it comes right back to, to abstraction and, and, and to representation again. Uh, you, you, what you're pointing out is both, I think, a general human tendency and one that is particularly marked in our own age. Why I say a general tendency is that this was, of course, one of the themes of Wordsworth about the difference between his experience of the Lake District, where he grew up, the mountains, the lakes, the, the, the waterfalls, the, the rocks, the whole thing, was, as he says, when he was young, it, was, it spoke to him and it, had, it was a living presence. He was somehow intoxicated by it when he was in its presence. 
And as he got older, he couldn't help substituting the idea of, oh, yes, that's a beautiful scene. It's a lake and a mountain and so on. And it's getting back from that. Uh, that he often talks about. He uses the phrase in his Ode on the Intimations of Immortality. He says, shades of the prison house close around the growing boy. And he was talking about his own experience, that this prison house of abstraction, generality, theory, takes over from the immediacy of experience. And I think it's something that one has to be aware of and keep practising. And, you know, I did, I did say I'm not here to give self-help, but there are certain <laughs> things like paying very close attention to pieces of music or poetry, not just kind of putting them on in the background, but actually listening to them very carefully. And meditation of various kinds. I mean, above all, mindfulness is really a matter of trying to get away from representation and back into the presence of the moment. Right. So, okay, you, you seem to have a bit of a... Uh... A bit of a, a frustration with being lumped in with with self helpers, or, or or has that has that happened to you? Have people been approaching you as this self help guru? Um, well, yes, in various ways. <laughs> so, uh, uh, um, a very nice thing is that I have an enormous um, correspondence, an enormous mailbag, far too many. Uh, emails every day than I can conceivably, unfortunately, reply to, though I do read them all. Hmm. Um, but some of them are very moving appeals for help in a personal situation, which, um, as I'm sure you can understand, I can't readily give because, right. um, you know, everybody's different and I'd have to be there with that person. I can't just advise them in the abstract over, over the internet. Um, and... But more generally, people want to know, so what do we do? You have really pointed to exactly what the problems are and what we're doing wrong. You know, when I read the last chapter of The Master and His Emissary, people say, I just recognized this world. And you go one thing after another, like 20 different aspects of it that are just so typically left hemisphere. What do we do about it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's like heartbreaking. It's brutal. This <laughs> I can't help feeling this is slightly like, you know, what you'd expect of the left hemisphere. It's like, oh, we've got a problem. We've got to solve it. Right, what are you going right. to do? I know. If you, if you can give me uh, eight bullet points and we can do all right, of those, right, we'll right, have right. sorted it all out. We can carry on as we always have done. But uh, as you know, uh, that's not what I believe we need to do. Right. Well, so I believe it, we need to see. Sorry. No, no, no. Sorry, I, I, maybe we have a bit of a delay here too. And I, but I, I, I'm sorry, I'm getting excited because you're talking about this stuff. And this, it, the, the problem is, I mean, you're saying you don't want to give practical advice, but but this, this, I mean, philosophy has always been something that pulls me in, that feels very practical, and that that makes me want to live my life differently. But this, this feels like the, like this. You're addressing one of the most. It seems to be the most important questions, the most most important problems of just being a human right now. And and so it's just it. it <laughs> so that's that's great because you haven't read my new book um but in that new book i set out to answer a question asked by plotinus the greek philosopher of the third century and he he says but we who are we now that's a very simple question but also a very very hard and a very deep Question. Who are we? And coming to terms with that and trying to answer that question seems to me to be essential to leading a life, certainly to leading a good life. And we need to answer, ask it urgently now. Uh, 
who are we? What is the world? And how are the two related? Hmm. And that's really the core of my book, is to try to guide us to a different vision, not one of a totally meaningless, random cosmos in which there are just lots of fragments that make no sense and we've mm -hmm. just got to get by the best we can. Uh, I, this, is, this is the product of the left hemisphere's dismantling mode. The left hemisphere says, what is this? I'll take it apart and find out what it's made of, right. and then I'll know what it is. The trouble is that as you take complex holes apart, the thing that attracted you there, the complex hole, is no longer present. Right. And the parts don't hold the secret anymore. Right. It's like trying to say, what is a piece of music? And you end up, well, it's got an A in it and a B flat and a D <laughs> and so on. And at the end of the day, you've got a bag of notes, but you haven't got the piece of music anymore. Right. Well, I, I was just actually, my, my friend is teaching a class on Moby Dick right now, so I'm reading it for the first time, and we just read a chapter about uh, about how you know, no, nobody has properly ever ever taken a picture or, or, or done a painting of a whale, because you can't. You can't actually... <laughs> You, you can't put it in a painting. It's 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 too big. I mean, for I mean, he gives kind of just a silly analogy that it's, it's just too big, right? But it's like, but everything is in a sense it's is too big. You you can't you know representation always is just from. I mean, the the phenomenological argument is just it's always you know, you're, you're just experiencing a certain angle, a certain a certain type of presence of the thing. But the, there's a there's a whole thing that's never fully experienced. That's right. There are several important things to say about that. Because we can't experience the whole doesn't mean to say that what we experience is not real. So there's a difference between saying what I experience is just a representation, like watching a film in a, in a sort of intracerebral cinema that's got all its windows closed on the world, and it's just some kind of peculiar projection from out of the inside of me. Yeah. That I re reject, and that is something I argue against in the book. But what is certainly true is that while we don't see... Uh, what we see is is a part of reality. It's not something just wholly made up, although we contribute to what it is. That's quite true. It's never complete. It's never whole. And I, I use a, a metaphor here, which is taken from a Japanese Zen garden of probably one of the most famous ones called Ruanji. And, and in this garden, there are, I think, 15 rocks in the bed of gravel. But from any one place within the garden, you can never see more than 14. Yeah. I like that very much because it warns us <laughs> of what we see is always only partial. And yeah. the secret of objectivity is not to imagine that there is some completely inhuman point of view in which everything real about humanity has been excised and that makes it objective. Yeah. That would make it a very, very peculiar position which in which we probably wouldn't understand very much of it at all. What we need is to be able to espouse as many possible takes on this as we can and therefore not to get bound uh, down and into dogmatism. It seems like... One of the things about the oh, sorry, culture sorry. we're in at the moment is a tendency to... Uh, to dogmatism, to an inability to be flexible, to see different points of view, to see give partial consent to an idea. It's all black and white. It's just right and wrong. Right. Well, and it, it's, it seems like it might be even sort of connected to a sort of cognitive priming to do with a lot of our technology. I mean, you talked about in the, in the Messrs. Emissary about, you know, various uh, patients in a certain study 
responding totally different to the world when primed with certain different uh, characters, like an old person or a, or a, yes. a lawyer, or uh, I forget what the, exactly what the examples were, but uh, like totally changing their personality and their even their views on things, their political views and things like this. And it's like... Uh, I mean, one of the things that I've been struggling with most in my own life and, and thinking about my relationship to the world is how much of my uh, experience of the world is, is filtered through technology, through a screen, through a phone, through a little box. Yeah. I mean, even down to just the shapes of like my, my computer screen is a, is a square, it's a rectangle. But there's a lot of other are really problematic uh features of this representation of the world too because you know uh, computers are are linked to frame rate which which you know leads to this it connects to this i think left hemisphere intuition that there's like there are particular points in time and you know and it's just a, a flashing sequence of one point to the next point and also even just like a there's a resolution depth to to the, any image I see on the com, on the computer, right? If I just zoom in enough, I can find the final pixel, and I could see exactly where I could see exactly where your your face ends on the picture in front of me, and where the you know room around you begins after that. But that's not how real life is, and it's you know priming mm-hmm. ourselves with with this so, these sorts of filters is I think really really damaging, and I don't. It's like I, even when I consciously think about that, I, I don't. I don't know what to do because I, it's like there's so much of a, of a benefit to interacting with the world through, through uses of technology, but it, it seems at the same time so damaging to my experience of the world. Yes, well, I mean, whether we want to or not, we can't disengage from technology in this world as it now stands. And, it, of course, it, has this, it, ha- it brings, makes certain things very much easier. Of course, actually making certain things very much easier may turn out to be a difficulty or a problem in its own right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's rather like the Chinese story, good luck, bad luck, who knows? We don't know what the longer-term consequences of things we now think are good will be. Very often, something we think is good will lead to very bad results, and something we think is bad may actually fortuitously lead us to somewhere providentially rather good. So that's worth bearing in mind. But I I think about technology, a number of things, obviously, none of them particularly original, but specifically to do with the left hemisphere, there are two. One is to do with the tendency to turn everything into a procedure, an algorithm, and something that can be administrated and controlled. Mm-hmm. And the other is to do with depth. About depth, what I mean is, I think there are three main ways in which we think of depth. One is depth of meaning and emotion, depth of humanity. Another is depth in space, three-dimensionality, simple as that. And another is depth in time, i.e. seeing that this is not just a moment, a fragment, something flashing up on your screen, but it's part of a continuous, long narrative a narrative of humanity, a narrative beyond that of the cosmos, more closely a narrative of our civilization and of our life, our individual lives and of our society. These three kinds of depths extend over time, extend into space, an extent of meaning and emotional um, understanding. Are each of them shallow in the left hemisphere? And each of these tendencies is accelerated by technology, which projects things onto flat screens, Mm -hmm. where things are abstracted from context, a hugely important point for me, because Mm -hmm. context changes everything. Mm 
The, sa- right. the very same words can mean the precise opposite depending of, on the context. And I give some humorous examples at times. But all of these things happen with technology. And the other thing is the simple weight of proceduralization. There was a time when I sort of felt, yes, technology is speeding things up and making them easier. I now feel that technology is slowing things down and making them very much harder. In the last... I don't know, 18 months in particular, I've noticed that far, far too much of my waking time is taken up negotiating some form of technology. Not because I particularly want to, but because I actually have to. Yeah, it's it's such a <laughs> it's such a burden on uh, I, I, I think I remember that there's various different little folk tales about this sort of thing that just the more the more technology you own, the more it owns you and things like this. Or it's just yes. it, it's it's well, I don't know. I, I, I'm very personally just trying to think about how to live my life and, ha- and how to how to keep technology in its place. And I don't I don't think anybody really knows what its place is other than to, to some extent. I mean, you kind of lay out that to the extent that you can associate technology and what it does with a left hemisphere perspective, it's it, it, it ought to direct our attention back to the the world of the right hemisphere. It ought to be, you know, it's a representation that says, hey, this way, you know, let's look deeper into this thing. But uh, I mean, one of, one of the most, I mean, so, so the, the most exciting thing about like our biggest piece of technology in the 20th century is the internet, right? We have access to, to everything all the time. I mean, I, I have access to talking to, to my favorite philosopher right now. I can, I could, even though we're not we're not living in the same country, right? So that's really exciting. But at the same time, is that when you have access to everything, the only response that is appropriate is to is to figure out new means of um, of of discarding most of that uh, that uh, that information and get much better at being very dismissive because there's too much there's too much information to to properly engage with. So you've got to just get really I mean, get really good and really quick at, at dismissing things and dismissing people and dismissing positions and i i think we get kind of caught up in that hopefully we'll, we'll bounce back but like i think that's the just about everybody's tendency is to just you know try try to fit everything into the schedule and and get through it as quickly as possible so that way i can do the most number of things i mean you talk about the difference yes. between you know quality and and quantity which i mean is a pretty common dichotomy but i mean that's and, and, as, as soon as we figured out how to qualify w- what is what value is in the world then we just get lots of whatever it is whatever how, however you know get lots of viewers lots of yeah. likes lots of money and it's like th- these things are not supposed to be an end in themselves but supposed to direct our attention back to what you know like money isn't value itself but it's supposed to represent value and supposed to guide our attention yeah. towards what value you know this this abstraction or it's not abstracted but sorry the, the, jump in here you've alluded to a lot of problems there i mean one is that more is not always more it can sometimes be less um and, and indeed there is an optimal amount of money associated with leading a happy life and it's right. really rather low and when you start getting above that the cares associated with it and the time that has to be devoted to it actually erode the quality of life. It's low. And what, what, what's the number? What, how much money do I need, the, Ian? The, 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 there's also the, the so-called hedonic treadmill. That means that uh, once you become familiar with a certain level of pleasure, it no longer gives pleasure and you have to have more. So there's that problem, but there are many, many others, as you know. I mean, one is that, as you've hinted, the more there is, the harder it is to find what is valuable. Right. Um, it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. 
And it makes something like constructing a longer argument and bringing a lot of evidence to bear in order to actually make somebody feel something completely different from what they're ready to hear or used to hearing. That takes time, and that's not easy. That's why, you know, I'm afraid I'm a writer of longish books. I hope in the future to write only short ones. Of any. <laughs> but I've just finished a very long book. All I can say is that I think there is an appetite for more depth. There is an appetite for not just sound bites, but actually going into something in some depth now. And it's uh, the evidence is that people are going back to reading books. Uh, they actually like physical books as much as they like mm. to to read on a on a Kindle or whatever it may be. And I've noticed also that podcasts often now um, the popular ones are often quite long. I mean, they might take two or three hours. Yeah. They don't have to be sound bites. So I think there is some hope there that we will do that. But uh, you're right that this this plethora of stuff. It's very difficult because it also encourages you to try to do, as you say, cram as much as possible in. And life is very paradoxical, at least to the left hemisphere, because the more it tries to cram in, the less it has. Right. A life in which you're trying to do six things at once means you're not doing anything to your satisfaction or properly or attending to it. You cannot attend to six different things at once. You can't watch TV, answer your phone, um, help your children with their homework, have breakfast, take exercise. You can't do all these things at once. And in fact, slowing down and simplifying life is very important. The great oriental perception that we have lost is that things have value because they're not always there and they're not always available. If they were, they'd cease to have value. So how, I, I mean... I can't imagine you spent 20 years digging into this um, into this question, this problem, and it hasn't transformed your life in some pretty meaningful ways. Like, what what are you doing differently? <laughs> um, this is a, a subtle kind of self help question. I mean, physician, heal thyself. What exactly, <laughs> are you do. <doing? laughs> The answer is actually not a good one. I mean, I mean, in some ways, being involved in a very big project, and my God, writing the matter with things has been a big project, yeah. has to be somehow obsessive. obsessive. You, to do it at all, you have to be that person who, rather like a long-distance runner who's practicing for a marathon or something, you know, gets up at six and goes running every morning, whether he or she wants to or not. And the question doesn't arise, do I want to? They just have to do it. Mm -hmm. And so my life has become more recently very much dominated uh, in, a, in a way that I, you know, I, I couldn't do anything about by the business of working, reading, reading, thinking, talking, mm -hmm. and getting this down on paper. I suppose the, the cast of mind that I, I wish my reader to, to have is one that I think has grown in me slowly over a lifetime, but was there from very, very early. So even in my teens, I thought a number of things that I wasn't being taught at school, but I still thought they were right. And I now know they are right. But I, in those days, I didn't know why they were right. 
For example, I thought the whole is not the same as the sum of the parts. I couldn't explain why. People say, well, what's this magic something else then? It is not in the parts. <laughs> well, at that stage, <laughs> uh, you know, I just had to go, well, I don't know, but I still believe they're not the same thing. And I profoundly, I mean, at the core of all I write is the idea that these things are not the same. I, I thought that the world was not dead and unresponsive and a mechanical, you know, a, a, a bunch of mechanically related things, but that it, it actually was responsive. There was a reverberation between me and whatever else is there. In other words, a two-way process, not a purely one-way process. Mm. I thought that on the whole, things tended to, the further you pushed them, you didn't get further and further away down a straight line. You started to come back to where you had begun. Not exactly the same point, but perhaps at a similar point on a spiral. So you had moved, but you'd moved to another level of the spiral above where you had been. So all these ideas, you know, um, that context made a huge, huge difference. The, 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 the whole difference to what you found and therefore taking stuff out of context was a really heinous sin. These things I, I already felt when I was in my late teens, I suppose, or even in my mid-teens. And then they drove me through my intellectual career in studying the philosophy of, of literature and art um, then going off into the mind-body question, which drove me to become a doctor and so forth. So my, my tendencies have always been towards a vision of life, towards a vision of what matters, um, which has been entirely consistent throughout. So when people say, how did it change my life? In a way, it hasn't exactly changed it. It's enabled me to express it. And, it, you know, what I hope, and it may be a forlorn hope, is that this effort has given something. I just want it to be a gift to somebody, mm. that somebody will read it and they'll go, yes, I see that and I resonate with it. And I'll tell you what I particularly like is lots of people write to me in terms that I am so grateful for and honoured by, saying your book changed my life or whatever. But they also say something else, which I very much like, which is what you revealed to me was something I had no words for. I'd never been able to say or express or mm -hmm. didn't know how to argue for it. But I knew it to be the case at some deep level. And what you have done is you've given me arguments, you've given me words, you've made me understand how it connects with the things that people say and indeed is very important and perhaps more important than what it is we're taught to believe by the culture in which we now um, pretend to live. I say yeah. exist rather than live anymore. But, but anyway, so what I'm really saying is I hope that what happens is that there is an unveiling for people of something that they kind of recognize mm -hmm. that isn't something that is totally alien, but is nonetheless quite different from what they see. And they begin to espouse that. But, you know, perhaps to be a little bit more practical, I mean, my life has always involved a lot of spending time in nature. Hmm. It's always involved, I'm very, very bad at this. Um, I'm not a paid up member of any religion, but I do like to put a time, aside time for prayer and for meditation, hmm. as much as I understand what they mean. Yep. And I think not necessarily knowing what they mean is not, not a bad sign, actually. I think unknowing 
is is very important in all this process. Uh, and I think that listening to music and poetry, reading poetry, I mean, all last year, I read a poem every day for 365 days on the internet as something to try and, you know, offer a little ray of light during the lockdown. So all these things have been massively important to me, as well as things like my friendship and my, and my family, you know. Mm. So that's where it's at. It's all a bit banal, but it, <laughs> no, 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 the I mean, really important things are usually not staggeringly novel. They're things that are <laughs> ancient. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, and, and, and to some extent, it, it seems like what the, the message you're preaching is, is a, a retreat from fixation on the novel and a return to, Absolutely. right. To, to an engagement with, 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 I mean, banal even that has a negative connotation, but an engagement with, with the things that you, you dismissed as boring because you, because you were wrong. Right. Yes. Well, could I just make a little gloss on the word novel and the word new? Okay. Because in my in my vocabulary there is a difference. One has to find a different way of expressing the sort of meretriciously novel novelty for its own sake, something different, something new that we just make up. Mm-hmm. And that's what one might call turning away from reality and developing a a fantasy or something that might be. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but to see things anew is not to see something different in the sense that I'm no longer looking at the same scene. I'm looking at the same scene, but I'm seeing it with completely new eyes. So what I'm seeing is new. It's not new in that it's completely transformed. It's got psychedelic colors and it's full of (laughs) um, little flying insects and, you know, no, but I'm looking at the same mountain. But I'm seeing the mountain for the first time. It's really, really there. And that is, again, a distinction Wordsworth and Coleridge made Mm -hmm. between imagination and fantasy. Imagination is not what takes you away from reality, but it's your only hope of contacting reality. Mm. It's by using your imagination to get into what you're seeing that you get there. And and, and I I quite often quote from Thoreau, it's not what you look at that matters. It's what you see. And that's really what, I mean, that encapsulates it. Right. Well, I, I, like, again, the, the reason why I feel like this is so energizing and so exciting is because it, it seems to plug into almost all of the, the major, even social issues people are, are, are very passionate about these days that, are, that people are identifying in our culture. Like, you know, people are, are very, there's, there's a lot of, there's a large movement of kind of anti-racism and anti-sexism and all these different isms because people are really frustrated with ism because ism is this, this tendency to, uh, I, again, that's, that's very, I mean, it's very of course, like when you're when you're thrown into a world where you have access to every book, every country, every person, every place, then the only way to make sense of all that is to compress them all down to very, very simplistic little templates about, okay, this is what Chinese means. This is what being a male means. This is what being gay is. This is what a Christian is, right? And all these th- people are so frustrated because they're so misunderstood by everyone around them because, but how is anybody going to help it, right? Everybody, the only way to, to engage with all this information is to t- treat it very, very simplistically. But again, in, in order to, to have a, a genuine relationship with 
with anybody who might land in one of those categories, if you want to think categorically, anybody who is of a particular minority race. But I mean, in a certain sense, everybody is an absolute minority because there, there's there's a, there's a real presence of a human that has never been before. And that is totally, I mean, it's like to experience that person, you have to really grapple with the principles you're talking about here. You have to set aside the representations, leave them at the door and begin to try to engage the person. Absolutely. Um, everything that is, is unique. That There are no general uh, anythings. Those are only mental constructs which the left hemisphere makes in order to try and help shape reality. Everything that exists is unique. No two blades of grass are the same. Certainly no two people are the same. And that is something that is an absolutely classic right hemisphere, left hemisphere difference. The right hemisphere understands uniqueness. The left hemisphere doesn't. It sees things as abstracted representations of a category. Isms. In my 20s, I wrote a book called Against Criticism. And in it, I took up cudgels against many of the isms in the academic world, which basically meant a way of not looking at a work of art, uh, or at least certainly looking at it and not seeing it. So you put a poem or a novel or a painting or whatever it was through a machine which was your ism. I'm going to look at it from a structuralist point of view, from a Marxist point of view, from a feminist point of view, from whatever it was. What this means is you immediately are distorting it. You're going to it with your own ideas about what it should be or could be, and you're finding only the things that will resonate with your ism. And that's a point I constantly make, is that the attention we bring to something changes what we find. If we attend to it and it's with a certain lens, only the stuff that is transmitted through that lens gets to be seen. So I would like to say to people, I understand your frustrations and I understand the very real crusades that people have to try and make the world a better place. But casting isms... Uh, is not the best way of doing it. It's a way, as you say, of grotesquely simplifying, lumping real human individuals together into boxes and then either accepting them or vilifying them. And it does that very dangerous thing, thing of taking you away from the human world in which there are only other suffering human beings with all their complexities, with all their contradictions, with all their very real needs and feelings, which can't be summarized in a simple phrase. And the proper approach to this is a more humble one and a more compassionate one. What I, what I hope for is a world in which we can approach one another with a degree of empathy and compassion and say, you're a man, that's great. There's something wonderful about men. You're a woman. That's wonderful. There's something good about, great about women. Why can't we admire and love both of these? In fact, the best kind of world would be one in which men and women really admired one another and liked the best about one another mm -hmm. without having to be exactly the same. Mm -hmm. and, and the same is true of everything else that you can apply these isms to. A compassionate 
compli- complicating and complicated way of looking at things rather than a, a cartoon-like one that leads often to, you know, really, really nasty, um, you know, narcissistic vitriol being poured on people that you don't know and you don't understand. Uh, to say to people, have a little humility about that. Um, and and so, yeah, uh, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a problem. But what one hopes is that out of this, some dialogue can come, because it's only with dialogue that we can get anywhere. So when people say, oh, I don't talk to anyone who belongs to that camp, or I don't talk to people who are not of my race right. or not of my sex or whatever it might be, well... Excuse my saying so, but I think this is this is a very unhelpful place to be starting from. We should be talking and we should be listening to one another, not just a one-way conversation, and be willing to say yes, but also. There is a great Zen saying, yes, but. And I sometimes want, I think I want to write, I don't want to write any more books, but I, I, <laughs> I somehow feel, I feel there's a book in me called Yes, but where I acknowledge the truth and the goodness in a point mm-hmm. of view, but want to say, but how about the opposite point of view? Right. There's a lot in that as well. Yeah. And there's another Zen saying I like, not always so. In other words, these blanket generalizations really don't necessarily apply to many, many situations. Mm-hmm. So if we could get away from that, that would be that would be a wonderful thing for me to see before I die. I want to counter your yes, but with a yes and, because I think okay, people good. people become frustrated when you, uh, but but is a very I mean, but buts are very dismissive things, you know. <laughs> Sorry for the pun, uh, <laughs> but if 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 it's depends a yes, how you use them. The, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, one of the, I, I think the, um, I think it's in the, the Bible for people who, um, who do improv, they have to learn the yes and rule, right? Because in order to build, you know, kind of a really active conversation and, and to, to start running with something, you have to make it as easy as possible for the other person to, to get on board, even with a new perspective. It's it, like, you don't have to dismiss another perspective in order to, I mean, and I think that's exactly what you just outlined. It's just that I think that people use that phrase, yes, but as a way of kind of saying, yeah, fine, let's, but, but, but I don't care. You know, it, it's, I, I like to well, look at even the way, I mean, I'm a Christian, so I, I, I meditate a lot on different, different stories in scripture and, and the, the life of Jesus. And, and like, um, I feel like many of his encounters with different people and, and, and the sort of answers he gives them to the, the problems they're struggling with can often be, they, they often amount to, a, to that sort of um, procedure of, of the, this yes and, where it's not this kind of preachy, or um, dismissive. He doesn't take people's perspectives and say, well, you're actually just entirely wrong. And so stop doing it that way. Do it this way. It's a, it's an expansion of, of a view. It's like he, he talks to these religious guys, the, the Pharisees who, who have a certain view on, you know, how you're supposed to, to live in the world when you're supposed to do work. And he, he doesn't engage with them by saying, you know, well, screw your law. That's, that's just bullshit. There's, there's a, there's a different way to, to live and, and you got to do it this way. It's always sort of a yes. And of, okay, yeah, that, that law is wonderful, but actually it's to point you towards something. He says, that's you know, the but, Sabbath was not created for, or, or man was not created for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for man. And in a certain sense, so Sabbath is to direct man's attention to a deeper sense of the Sabbath. 
Yes. Um, well, of course, uh, I entirely agree with you about your main point. Yes, and uh, I didn't mean yes, but in the sense, I meant yes, but in the thoughtful way. Uh, yes, uh, that's all true. Uh, and or but there are other <laughs> things not encompassed in that that also need to be taken into it right. and and included. So it's inclusive rather than exclusive. But uh, perhaps I could take what we're just talking about to one level up from that, a sort of meta level. Okay. Because we we need both inclusion and union and a degree of distinction without that necessarily meaning uh, ultimately division or separation. So we need to be able to see distinctions between things. That's extraordinarily important. That's how anything becomes what it is, by being itself and not another thing. So one of the themes of my book is the need for a drive for union and a drive for division at the same time. But we need them to be unified at the meta level. We don't need them to be divided. So we need that drive for distinction and we need that drive for union. But we need those two at some superior level, the next level up, to be unified. And so there is room in this world for an either-or. The left hemisphere tends to go in for either-ors. But the left hemisphere is not always wrong. It's actually quite a good servant. The whole point of the metaphor of the master and his emissary in the title of my first right. book, as you, not my first book, but my earlier book, as you know, comes from the idea that there is a sort of master that's wise and appoints an emissary who can only see so much, but by seeing so much can do some good as long as it remains the in service to the master it's when he thinks it's the master itself mm -hmm. that it, things mm -hmm. start to go wrong because it can't see what it is it can't see it doesn't know what it is it doesn't know mm -hmm. so we need both that either or tendency in life and the both and tendency in life and i i i like here a story i i've been researching a, a great deal uh, of the kabbalah in the last five years hmm. and in that there is the tradition just as you say of the needing to be law but the needing to be spirit there needs to be what's called halakha and there needs to be what's called agada and agada is the more imaginative creative empathic aspect but Haggadah is also the one that offers structure and you know and ritual and all that and both of these are required but interestingly Halakha should be in service to Agada. in other words the kind of left hemisphere thing should be in service to the right hemisphere mm -hmm. thing and it, it, there's a, a, a thing I heard Rabbi Jonathan Sachs who was the chief rabbi um, in, in England uh, now sadly dead but a, a, a great man and, and he gave this story which I heard on the radio one day and I wrote to him and asked him where it comes from apparently it's out of the, the Torah somewhere but there's a man who a pious man who is reading the um, Talmud and he discovers that Rabbi X says that X is the case and then he goes on and he, he, he reads um, further and he finds there's another um, very holy man, a Rabbi Y, who says that X is absolutely not the case. So he, he's kind of confused. So he prays to God and, um, you know, which is right? And God says, both of them are right. <laughs> and, and in some understandable exasperation, he says, but they can't both be right. To which he replies, 
but all three of you are right. Which I, I, I love. I mean, <laughs> um, oh, that's great. So I, I'm really just glossing this idea of but. It's not always. It's not always bad. It's necessary, but it can be included in a greater and. Um, but but unpacking all that is something I do at much greater length in this. Uh, right. In this new book. Hmm. <laughs> Which I'm so, so excited to read. I, I don't know when it's going to be around for me to get a copy here, but. Yeah, we're, we're working on the distribution in the U.S. It should be available from the publication date, which is the 9th of November. Okay, awesome. And are you going to do a, an audio book? That's how I got, I, I was listening a lot of, through a lot of this I did on the audio book and I would go back and read some passages as well. Yes, yes, I, I am. I mean, people said this time, why don't, because with the master and his emissary, I was too busy writing the matter with things to read the audio book of the master and his emissary. So <laughs> right. it's done by a professional reader, who I think does a, a very creditable job. Yeah, I thought it was great. Uh, job. But um, people said, actually, we'd, we'd like to hear you read it. Um, they're your words. And then, you know, there's, there's, there's more in it when you read it. So I am going to read it, but it will take me a long time to read it aloud. And it's, so it'll be a year, I would think, before that okay. happens. However, at the same time that the hardback is being published, there will be an e-book available. Okay, so great. for those who who would prefer to have have it on a on a Kindle because the books are, are big. They're, the only thing is they're so beautiful, and yeah. unfortunately the ebook isn't. I mean the ebook is just an ebook, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. the books are actually. Um, though I say so myself, they're physically very beautiful. I had, uh, through a, an enormous stroke of luck, I had the services of uh, somebody who could be held to be the the greatest living um, authority on typography, a Canadian, wow. to uh, to typograph it. And it's it's bound in signatures. It's on high quality paper. Beautiful. It has lots of illustrations. It's beautifully oh. bound. It is. It is a book yeah. such as you can be proud to own, and it will not fall apart. So we, we've got this kind of fra anyway. fractal experience of the philosophy in the book, where you have it available on the Kindle, which is more of a representation that ultimately ought to guide you towards the real experience of the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 But I, I mean, one of the things that. Uh, Again, I mean, I, a lot of this stuff that links up with different things I grew up hearing, but it, it, it brought my, to my mind this, um, this passage in Ephesians talking about, you know, it says in, let me see if I can remember exactly what it says. I think it's something like, in the fear of Christ, submit yourselves to one another. And then it kind of goes on and talks about wives and husbands submitting to one another. And it's like, it's, I, I, I just love that, that first first phrase though it's it's in fear or in, in one of the versions i looked at this morning it said in in the dread of god so in, in this like i mean i definitely felt a, a certain sense of dread reading the last chapter i mean and you said other people have as well just realizing oh my god there is so so much of life and so much of experience that i've been dismissing and that i've that i've missed and that, and, and that, that is really real that i need to engage with and and it sounds like sort of in light of that this the, the author of ephesians is, is saying you know when, when you've come to that realization you need to you need to then submit yourselves to to, to want especially to people who care about you i mean wives and husbands ought to know each other probably more deeply than than most other people <laughs> yes yes well, of course, the word fear has come to have a narrower meaning than it had 
um, when the King James Bible was translated. But I mean, the, the, the way I think of it is perhaps more encompassed by the word awe. Hmm. And I, 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 I mean, I, I'm nobody to to try and, you know, who am I to say what I think is essential to the spirit of the spiritual life or of a religious life. But I think there are three things that have struck me as particularly important and as perhaps not very obviously present in our modern world. One is the sense of wonder and awe. Another is we, we too readily think we know it all. And of course, the more you think you know it all, the more mistaken you are. Mm -hmm. Another is humility, um, simply accepting um, that one is a very flawed being, but that doesn't mean that somehow one is worthless, uh, nor does it mean that one is somehow worth much less because one is awestruck or is something that takes you up into the nobility of what you are in awe and wonder before. Mm -hmm. Being humble is not a matter of abasement, but it's a matter of recognizing your position in a network, the network of the cosmos that you can only know some bit of. And the third element I think is compassion. And I think what I would say from what I know of holy people and of religions, which although, as I say, I don't, I mean, formally, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church and I haven't really very much in my life at all. Um, but I, I think there's enormous wisdom in the Christian mythos, a word I use not with any um, sense that it's not true. A mythos is a story which is possibly true or not. Um, and we all have them. I mean, people who don't think they have a, have a myth by which to live have the myth of the senseless, pointless, random universe, which is just a machine. That's a myth as well. It may be true, it may not. Christianity is a myth and, and it may be true. But all I'm really saying is that in all these myths around the world, which encapsulate the wisdom of people who've come before us, and in the things that have been said by people who've impressed me with their, their holiness, whatever religion or, or none that they come from, I think there are those three qualities of awe, or perhaps what you were talking about, fear, humility, which, as you talked about, submit uh, yourself uh, to one another, and, and compassion, which is bound up in what um, St. Paul was saying there. I have to say, um, and there's no reason why you need agree with me at all, I find, uh, and, and it's completely irrelevant, and you can cut this out of our interview tonight, <laughs> I find I have a... I have a problem with St. Paul. Uh, he, he, he is my stumbling block with Christianity. Really? Um, the, the, the story of Christ, the Gospels, and, and the rest is fantastic. I find Paul a figure I have to do some reckoning to come to terms with. But that's no doubt my... No, well, I mean, I, th I think it, it it fits right with your, I mean, just a second ago, you were talking about how just because you have a particular perspective on an experience with the world, an experience with the truth or an experience of God, yeah. d doesn't, I mean, it, it by nature is going to be a limited one because that's that's what a perspective is. And, and yes. that doesn't mean it's less, it's, in, it's not valuable 
it, it means that it just oh. simply needs to be submitted to many other perspectives. In a certain, I, I, I actually, when I first started reading reading your book, I, I, I read, wrote a short little essay, and I haven't haven't put it out yet, but I have a friend who wants, wants to publish it for me. Um, and I, I, the essay is called Metaphysical Depth Perception or Metaphysical Trig- Trigonometry, where I just got to use this silly little metaphor, kind of riffing on on Viktor Frankl's. Um, I think it's in the will to meaning, but anyway, he, he talks about just like you, you begin to, to see things when you, when you combine different perspectives, you can actually see a much deeper, you get a much deeper sense of what the, the true thing is. And so again, when you, when you submit yourselves to one another, especially people whom you, you trust and you, and you feel like have a good head on their shoulders, a good, good set of eyes in their head, you, you can actually get get a deeper sense. I mean, you can have trigonometric depth perception into the metaphysical realm, if, if that's not too crazy of an analogy <laughs> to use. But I, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful analogy, and it, it was what I was getting at earlier when I said objectivity is not absenting yourself from any point of view, which you can't do, but being able to see as many aspects of this as possible. And this is really what the phenomenologists um, are driving at, and also what the pragmatists, um, an American tradition of philosophy, which I very much honor and admire, that of C.S. Peirce, John Dewey, um, and William James in particular, uh, very much that point of view that by adopting uh, more than one perspective, you get a three-dimensional picture, which is more true, more real than anything that doesn't have that richness of perspective. Yeah. So perhaps we're getting to a point where we need to wrap up now. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm so sorry. I know we've, we've got a minute or two over here, but thank you so, so much for taking a a little while. No, we can go on for a few minutes. I oh, mean, really? We don't have to just roughly stop. <laughs> but all I mean is that I'm coming, coming to the end. Okay. Yes. I, I really want to be respectful of your time because honestly, it feels like it's it's such a, such a privilege to get to, to chat with you, Ian. This is, I mean, the, the last hour has been has been such a a joy. <laughs> oh. Oh, well, thank you. It, it, it's been a great pleasure for me too. Um, and, and obviously, there's so much that we could talk about. Um, that's the trouble. Uh, <laughs> there's no natural end to this conversation. Yeah. Well, I, I was wondering <laughs> actually has to have an un, unnatural one. I, I, I've been my eyes been catching in the in the background of your room this really this beautiful painting. I wondered if maybe maybe yes. if you wanted to wrap things, maybe you could tell me a little bit about that before we go. Yes, um, I have used that painting and a painting another painting, a more somber painting in the same genre by the same artist uh, for the covers of my book. I I own both paintings, the other ones um, in the hallway here at my house, and um, they're on the covers. I've used them for the covers of um, volumes one and two, the two volumes of The Matter With Things. Awesome. Um, They're by um, an artist called Ross Loveday, um, he has a presence on the web if people want to look him up. Um, I did consult him uh, as to how he felt about my using them in this way, and um, he was gracious about that and, and very pleased for me to do so. And I think what I love about, well, apart from the, the fact that they just are very beautiful, and beauty is a very difficult thing to analyze, but there are many so-called abstract paintings that do very little for me. But as soon as I saw these two paintings, and I'm sorry, I can't show you the other one right now, um, 
something in me said, these are very powerful. Mm -hmm. And they sort of inhabit, for me, a realm that is somewhere between the abstract and the representational, Mm -hmm. which I think is rather wonderful, because I think for an abstract to work, it is actually calling on, calling back to to cognition, therefore helping you recognize or recognize something in the world. Mm. It's not just a pattern, but a pattern that has meaning in the world. Mm. And so what these paintings do for me is bridge the representational and the abstract. Um, They bridge the landscape around me with an inner landscape that I find uh, appealing. And they form... Uh, something that I think or hope will resonate with the reader of the book as they see these images unfold. So thank you, Ross Loveday. Um, uh, As one feels for every artist, I mean, it's just gratitude Mm. for all the work that goes into it, you know, the, the, the work that goes into any great work of art. I mean, I'm anyway, only seeing a fairly ro- low-resolution, you know, pixelated version over your shoulder. But it, I, honestly, just looking at it feels... Uh, it, it really brings to mind... You, you, you did this one beautiful talk about the, the concept of longing a little while ago. And that was so moving to me. And it's... it's I mean, it brought words to... To I mean, to, I really it feels like the the sense of the, the experience you've, you've had looking at this painting, which I'm I'm really I'm feeling it even in this moment as I'm looking at it over your shoulder. <laughs> yes, it's, it's hard to see, but it is it is I I can understand that, and uh, thank you for those words. Yes, yes, that was a talk I gave at Heathrow College a few years ago in um, theological college in London. Um, I, I hope it's still on the web anyway. Fantastic. Okay, so is there, is so there anything? You, sorry, I was going to say, is there anything that you want to uh, to anybody who's watching this video, any any place you'd like to direct their attention to next? I mean, obviously, go buy the book. <laughs> well, <laughs> the best place to buy it, um, because it's cheapest there, um, and most readily available, is on my website, Channel McGilchrist. Uh, so if you just Google Channel McGilchrist, it will take you there. Um, even if you misspell my name, I hope it will take you there. <laughs> and uh, yes, there you can hear me talk about many things and uh, about the book. And uh, we've tried to put a lot of material up there. Um, very large m- amount of it is in a public area where anybody can just go and browse for as long as they want. If you're moved to contribute, then you can and you become a member. And there's there's more privileges to membership, but I'm hoping one day to to move to um, a way in which we can support ourselves only by donation. I would prefer that, mm, really. That'd be great. Anyway, uh, channelmcgilchrist.com is where you can find out more about me and my work, and you can buy um, the latest book, which is now beginning to go out, certainly within the UK. As I say, distribution overseas may have to wait till publication date the 9th of November for technical reasons I don't entirely understand. Okay. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks again so, so, so much for for chatting with me. This has been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Garrett. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Well, that was interesting. If you enjoyed this conversation, consider sharing it with someone else you think might find it interesting. Even better, try to find someone you think might disagree with something here and take some time to listen to their perspective. 
try to have a meaningful, good-faith conversation. Practice listening deeply and patiently, and speaking clearly and precisely. I think if we can get better at this, we might actually change the world. Anyway, thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time.